Welcome to the podcast of Hope Community Church. Hope exists to be a church where people can experience the transformative power of the gospel in the context of grace-centered community. We strive to be real people looking to the real Jesus for real change that can have redemptive impact among individuals, local communities, our city, and the world. For more information, visit hopecommunity.com. Well, uh, over the last uh, several years, Holly and I have been through a period of disorientation that's pretty normal when you get into your mid-50s. As our children have entered adulthood, our parents have started to die, and our sense of vocational calling has come into question. Uh, In fact, I remember a friend of mine who was empty nesting uh, she was saying, as a mom, when your kids grow up, it's like losing the best job you've ever had, right? There's a sense in which you're just kind of, you're getting, you know, mission accomplished to launch them, but it's kind of this big question about what next. And so for both of us, during this season, we've benefited from spending time with guides that we hadn't met with before. Uh, For me, that's meant meeting with Dr. Barbara Peacock, an African-American woman in her 70s, for spiritual direction as part of my role with the Charlotte Institute for Faith and Work. And uh, each, in their own way, have told Holly and I the same thing. And it's this, don't be afraid of the dark. Jesus has sent you into it on purpose. He has something for you there if you'll just trust him enough to do what he's asking you to do. And here's why I bring this up, uh, because in our passage today we encounter the very moment the Apostle Peter learned this truth for the first time. For those of you who weren't here last week, a little bit of background information might be helpful before we look at today's passage, which we've included on the insert in your bulletin. Jesus' disciples were really excited to be with him. They haven't seen him for weeks, and they've been out doing ministry in the neighboring towns. Mark tells us that this day began this way in Mark 6, verse 30 and 31. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, "'Come away by yourselves to a remote place.'" and rest for a while. For many people were coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. But instead of making it to their private retreat to rest and to recover, they met with a crowd of more than 5,000 people who had gotten ahead of them. And Jesus had compassion on this crowd, and so he decided to teach them all day long. And then, as evening approached, he supernaturally fed more than 5,000 people through the miraculous use of five loaves and two fish, which we read about last week in Mark 6, 41 and 42, where we read this. He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke the loaves, and he kept giving them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all, and everyone ate and was satisfied, which is where our passage picks up today. Jesus reboots his plan 
to retreat with them. In verse 45 of Mark 6, we read, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Now, you may think, oh, great, this sounds exciting. They've got to be excited about this. They were excited to be with him in the morning. He told them he wanted to be alone with them. They were going on a retreat. They got detoured into this ministry. Now, certainly, they're going to be excited about this opportunity until you realize when he said this. It was 8 p.m. at night. And Jesus' unappealing instruction is that they get in a boat and start rowing five miles across the Sea of Galilee on full bellies while exhausted. Not exactly a restful experience. Can you imagine what is going through their heads? Come on, Jesus. We haven't seen you for weeks. Don't you want to spend some time with us? Do we really have to row back across the lake in the middle of the night while you do your own thing? Why can't we stay here with you and leave in the morning? In fact, these very objections may have come up because Mark says that Jesus, quote, made them go. The Greek word that's translated made here, which means force or compel. Jesus had to order them to get in the boat and to go across the Sea of Galilee at night against their wishes and against their better judgment. Now, to their credit, they obeyed this command, and they headed into the darkness, and then what happens? Verse 46, after he said goodbye to them, he went away to the mountain to pray. Well into the night... The boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. He saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Because they obeyed Jesus, their life got worse. It's not bad enough that they weren't getting any rest. It's not bad enough that they weren't getting to spend time with Christ. It's not bad enough that they've been forced to row across the Sea of Galilee at night. Now... A storm has come up, and they are having to expend all of their energy to fulfill Jesus' command. What do you think is going through their minds now? I knew we shouldn't have crossed this thing at night. Why did we listen to him? After all, he's a carpenter, and we're professional fishermen. If I go overboard here at night, they will never find me. I will drown for sure. And then, the terrifying happens. Verse 48, very early in the morning, he came toward them, walking on the sea, and wanted to pass them by. The phrase translated here, very early in the morning, literally says that Jesus came walking toward them in the fourth watch of the night, which means it was 3 a.m., Jesus had compelled them to go across the sea at 8 or 9 p.m. They had gone for miles when he saw them straining against the oars supernaturally from the top of the mountain where he was praying. They were miles away at night at this moment. And then he walks on water 
And to top it off, he intends to do what? He wanted to pass them by. What do you do with the fact that Jesus clearly had the power to improve their situation, the situation they were in because he had told them to go and they had obeyed him, and he clearly isn't using it? Have you ever felt this way? Each of us, I think, can remember times when God worked powerfully in our lives to rescue us or to redeem us. But thinking about those times can also be very difficult because it makes us painfully aware that there are other times, maybe even right now, when he could rescue us but chooses not to do it. What's worse, you can even think of times when God sent you into a situation that has caused the suffering in your life to radically increase. Maybe you started a ministry that failed. Or took a job after praying long and hard only to get let go. Or moved to Charlotte only to find yourself friendless and lonely during a pandemic. Or thought that you married the person of your dreams until their secret sins and misdeeds dark started to surface. What do you do when that happens? The disciples allowed their fear to distort their perception of God. Verse 49, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. But why didn't they immediately think, oh, there's Jesus? I mean, they'd already seen him heal a paralyzed man, still a storm with a word, raise a dead girl back to life, and literally hours before feed 5,000 people through their very hands with five loaves and two fish. Well, they didn't recognize it as Jesus for the same reason that we don't. Uh, when we're struggling, we think if any good person had the power to stop this, they would. Therefore, either God isn't good or he simply doesn't have real power to fix real problems. At Hope, I hear this argument from someone in pain at least once a week. And to be quite honest, anytime I'm in pain, I'm tempted to make it myself. If God is all good and all powerful, why does evil exist? Or more specifically, why does evil exist that impacts me and those that I love? Why aren't my prayers for my children being answered? Why can't I find a lucrative job that I really love? Why do my friends and family members neglect me? Why are so many Christians so far apart politically, socially, and culturally? These are good questions. Let's think about it for a minute. Why does God allow storms to enter our lives? The simple answer to the question that the Word of God gives is that our loving Heavenly Father finds them to be spiritually beneficial for us. Hebrews 12, 7-11 says this, Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive... 
then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of our spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but He does it for our benefit so that we can share in His holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The author of Hebrews is explaining that God uses storms the way Coach Saban used winter conditioning practices in the places he coached. Now that he's retired, all these uh, stories are coming out about Nick Saban. And one of my favorite ones was the one that the players at Toledo University shared about his first day on the job in his very first coaching uh, job in college. It says, they said that what happened is Coach Saban called the entire team into the gym in the middle of winter at 6.30 in the morning. And when they got there, he said to them, you're about to practice harder than you have ever practiced anywhere in your whole life. And there were 16 stations set up around this gym that they were going to do these workouts. By the time they got to station number eight, Already eight scholarship players had quit the team. They weren't even halfway through the conditioning practice, and guys were like, I'm out. But of the guys that remained, what happened was they ended up winning the Mid-American Championship. They went from being a losing squad to a national championship conference squad because this is what they learned there are disciplines that you need to go through in order to experience what you most deeply desire. You will either have to suffer the pain of discipline or you'll have to suffer the pain of unmet desire. But if you want to avoid the pain of unmet desire, you endure the pain of discipline. Jesus understands this. He calls people to come and be his disciples, which means what? Come and be disciplined by me. That's what it means to be a disciple. This is someone to whom I am submitting and enduring the disciplines that they give me so that I can meet the desires of my heart. If we're going to be disciples of Jesus, then like these apostles, we are going to have to learn to trust him when he leads us into difficulty. Jesus knows what you most desire in life, and he knows what it takes for you to experience the fulfillment of those desires. The route to your best eternal life isn't through an easy earthly life. It's through a hard one. Which brings us to the quote we put on the front of your bulletin today. My spiritual director gave me this book by Dr. Barbara Brown Taylor called Learning to Walk in the Dark. And it's been very helpful to me in this season of life. She says this, Step one of learning to walk in the dark is giving up running the show. Next, you sign the waiver that allows you to bump into some things that may frighten you at first. Finally, you ask the darkness to teach you what you need to know. 
I can think of at least three ways God uses darkness and storms in my life to teach me what I need to know. The first is that darkness and storms reveal to me what's actually going on in my heart. Look at verse 49. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke with them and said, have courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were completely astounded because they had not understood about the loaves. Instead, their hearts were hardened. You see, they'd been in this place before. A few chapters earlier, Jesus, in probably this very boat, had stilled a storm with a word on this very sea. And yet, over the past several weeks, in spite of the fact that they had seen God supernaturally give them the power to proclaim the gospel with divine authority to heal people, to command evil spirits to depart, literally minutes after being used of God to supernaturally feed 5,000 people, they find themselves angry and afraid because deep down they really still don't trust God to look out for them. Their hearts are really hard. Why? Well, Mark says it's because they hadn't understood about the loaves due to the hardness of their heart. Doesn't the same thing happen to you? I mean, I've been following Jesus now for, I mean, more than 40 years. And still, crazy things wake me up at night, right? What, what wakes you up at night? Reasonable fears about your kid's future or your career direction or your, you know, the, the status of your friendship or your relationship with God or the worst possible ones, right? Where does your mind go when you find yourself unstructured in the middle of the night? Well, that's what's happening here. Jesus commanded them to go into the dark. They encounter a storm that made them strain at the oars. And then he drew near enough to them so that they could see him passing by. Why? To reveal the current condition of their hearts. Still hard, still full of fear, and still distorting God. The second thing that darkness and storms do is they expose the insufficiency of my idols. One of the things that the Bible reveals about us is that because we're needy and finite creatures, we have to rely on something to make life work. You're going to worship something. Everybody's got to serve somebody, Bob Dylan says. And yet, all of us come into this world determined to try and make our lives work without having to rely on God. Because that requires a vulnerability that we hate. And so what we do instead is we turn to a created thing that we think we can control to be the source of our significance or security or comfort or joy. The Bible's name for this is idolatry. And storms are great at freeing us from idols because only the living God can stand up to a life of real pain. Soren Kierkegaard put it this way, he says, Affliction is able to drown out every earthly voice, but the voice of eternity within a man it cannot drown. When, by the aid of affliction, all irrelevant voices are brought to silence, 
it can be heard, this voice within. I've seen God do this here at Hope. Many years ago, a friend of mine lost his wife to brain cancer at the age of 35. Prior to this moment, he had been a spoiled, insecure, self-focused young man. Afterwards, he was both humble and surprisingly confident. I asked him one day about the transformation, and he said, Well, because of my affluent upbringing, I used to be so focused on my own comfort that I was afraid of nearly everything in life. When my wife died, the thing I feared most in life happened to me, and my idol's ability to protect and comfort me wouldn't work. As a result, I met God in a new way and experienced him carrying me through the thing I thought I could never survive, and it changed my life. He literally met Jesus in the valley of the shadow of death, and because he did, he stopped fearing evil. Which brings us to the third reason storms are so useful. They reveal God's strength. Verse 48, he saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Very early in the morning, he came toward them walking on the sea and wanted to pass them by. Can you imagine what this looks like? Here the disciples are in a boat in a storm straining at the oars and Jesus is walking by. No strain, no struggle, simply strolling through the storm that had brought them to a complete halt, making much better time than they were. Our storms expose God's strength. Psalm 107 puts it this way, They saw the Lord's work, His wondrous works in the deep. He spoke and raised a stormy wind that stirred up the waves of the sea, rising up to the sky, sinking down to the depths, their courage melting away in anguish. They reeled and staggered like a drunkard, and all their skill was useless. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper, and the waves of the sea were hushed. They rejoiced when the waves grew quiet. Then he guided them to the harbor they longed for. That was written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Look at how Jesus does this. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke with them and said, have courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Jesus was going to pass them by because something good was happening in their struggle against the storm, against the darkness. But when they got terrified and panic set in, he was moved to compassion. And he calmed them the same way we calm our loved ones when they are having a nightmare. Notice that they didn't say, we know it's you, Jesus, but are you good? It was a given that if it was Jesus, then he was good. As soon as they heard his voice, as soon as they saw his face, as soon as his compassion woke them up out of their nightmare... They calmed down because they realized that it was Jesus on the water and they didn't have to be afraid 
They knew that they were in good hands. But it's one thing to say that everything's going to be okay. It's quite another thing to actually have the power to make everything okay. Verse 51, then he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were completely astounded. How does Jesus have the authority to tell us that everything is going to be okay? Well, to answer that question, we need to look carefully at exactly how Peter described this encounter to Mark. When Mark says Jesus wanted to, quote, pass by them, the Greek word he uses here is the same one used to describe the times when God allowed his glory to pass by his people, first Moses and then others. So when he hid Moses in the rock, and his glory passed by. This is what he was doing. And when they were terrified, and Jesus calmed them down by saying, Have courage, it is I. The Greek phrase, it is I, is ego and me. Again, I am, is what he said. Have courage, I am. Don't be afraid. Which is how God introduced himself to Moses in the burning bush. When Moses said, who should I tell them? The Israelites, slaves in Egypt, who should I tell them sent me? Well, you tell them, ego and me. Tell them, I am sent me. And so what Peter wants us to understand here is who he encountered in the dark of that storm that Jesus sent them into. What Peter is saying is he encountered the living God who told him specifically have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. This realization was so transformative for Peter that he got out of the boat and walked on water, which interestingly enough, Mark leaves out. Now, why would Mark leave this out? Peter is dictating the book of Mark to, to Mark. This is the first gospel. Luke includes it, Matthew includes it. Mark leaves it out. I think the only prudent conclusion is to say Jesus told him to leave it out. Because the thing that Peter discovered in that storm was not that he could walk on water. What Peter discovered in that storm was that Jesus, the living God, is with me. And because he is, I can endure any storm he leads me into. There is nothing that can separate me from his love. There is nothing that can take me out of his hand. And how did Peter discover that? Well, by watching Jesus endure the storm on the cross that none of us could make it out of. Matthew 27 tells us that this is what he saw. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said he's calling for Elijah, and immediately one of them ran and grabbed a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a stick and offered him a drink. But, he, but the rest said, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. But Jesus cried out again in a loud voice and gave up his spirit. 
You see, on the cross, Jesus endured the storm of God's wrath due our sins. The storm that none of us can escape. It's described by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 23 this way. It says, look, a storm from the Lord. Wrath has gone out, a whirling storm. It will whirl about the heads of the wicked. The Lord's anger will not turn away until he has completely fulfilled the purposes of his heart. In time to come, you will understand it clearly. You see, on the cross, God forsook his son so that he could turn toward us and promise, I will never forsake you. Paul describes it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. Just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterwards at his coming, those who belong to him. I love the way Barbara Brown Taylor describes this realization for her. She says it this way near the end of her book. She says, By all accounts, a stone blocked the entrance of the cave so that there were no witnesses to the resurrection. Everyone who saw the risen Jesus saw him after. Whatever happened in the cave happened in the dark. As many years as I've been listening to Easter sermons, I have never heard anyone talk about that part. Resurrection is always announced with Easter lilies, the sound of trumpets, bright streaming light, but it did not happen that way. It happened in a cave. It happened in complete silence, in absolute darkness, with the smell of damp stone and dug earth in the air. Let that sink in. New life starts in the dark. Whether it is a seed in the ground, a baby in the womb, or Jesus in the tomb, it starts in the dark. So if you're here today and you find yourself in the dark, straining at the oars of your life, and you're terrified that this storm is going to kill you, take heart. There is someone here with the power and the goodness to tell you, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Whatever storm you're in is being used of God, the God who loves you and gave himself for you. To bring you to an end of your idols and to the foot of his cross. And when that storm has done its job, He will calm it with a thought. For he saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Very early in the morning he came toward them walking on the sea and wanted to pass by them. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke with them and said, Have courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were completely astounded. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are in the dark with us. 
that you are in the valley of the shadow of death. And because you're here, we don't have to be afraid. I pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear this promise. It is I. Don't be afraid. Take heart. We ask this in your name. Amen.